106.5 WFMP, this is Community Control Now. We're doing a special presentation today, The Dialectical Rise of a White Nationalist State, a Historical Overview of the Origins of White Nationalism in America. And this is by our co-conspirator, dear brother Michael T. Say what's up to the people. What's happening? What's happening? Yeah, you want to um, give them the math on this thing here? Um what was you uh, inspired by, or how would you want to play this thing out uh, for the people? What do, what do you want them to get from this? Well, what I want them to get, uh, we will be saying in the introduction. Okay. Yes. Well, that's fair. And uh, Kanisha's also here with us. What up, Kanisha? What's up? What's up? Yeah, so we're going to read it out here, kind of play it as a serial podcast. We'll make it into its own playlist, and for your listening pleasure, I present to you the dialectical rise of a white nationalist state. Okay. Introduction. Quote, the state is the institution or complex of institutions which bases itself on the availability of forcible coercion by special agencies of society in order to maintain the dominance of a ruling class, preserve the existing property relations from basic change, and keep all other classes in subjection, unquote. Hal Draper. Quote, the most common mistake people make when talking about racism is to think of it as a problem of personal prejudices and individual acts of discrimination. They do not see it as a system, a web of interlocking, reinforcing institutions, political, economic, legal, military, educational, all of our institutions." End quote. Elizabeth Martinez. Quote, there is a commonly held belief that only white people uphold white supremacy. This is one of the most deceptive myths about white supremacy because it prevents BIPOC, black, indigenous, and people of color from exploring and examining the ways that they may individually sustain white supremacy, just often manifest as white adjacency. The act of aligning with whiteness and distancing yourself from your ethnic and racial identity in order to gain access and opportunities. White supremacy can only manifest as colorism, which is a persistent issue within India, Latin America, Africa, and nearly every community of color. A mother who tells her daughter not to play out in the sun because her skin will get too dark is upholding white supremacy and subtly reinforcing the belief that proximity to whiteness via lighter skin makes a woman more beautiful. BIPOC can both uphold white supremacy and possess anti-black views. They are two sides of the same coin. One way of defining white nationalism in the USA is as a political orientation based primarily on the twin ideas that, one, people classified as white constitute a separate superior species of humans, in other words, white supremacy. Two, nation states like the U.S. should exist first and foremost as the collective province and or property 
of white people. The purpose of this document is twofold. First, to shed much needed light on the origins of white nationalism as a social system inextricably connected to and part of the U.S. nation state, the first of its kind, to develop in large part on the basis of white nationalism. And second, as a concise, ready reference or episodic digest to be utilized in reframing a more accurate account of the multicultural, historical contour and narrative of early U.S. history, particularly from the period of British settler colonialism to the immediate aftermath of the official founding of the USA. Part one, in the beginning, Europe, Africa, America, capitalist colonialism. Quote, today there are over 500 federally recognized Native American nations in the United States. At the time Columbus arrived in the West Indies, there were approximately 15 million indigenous people in the U.S., after reaching a low point around 1900, the population of Native Americans in the U.S. is now around 2 million, according to government census figures, although these figures are highly contested. The population of Native Americans in the continental United States decreased from 12 million to 237,000 during the first four centuries of our history, end quote. Before the European invasion of what came to be called North America, the people who occupied it were arguably a sprawling, independent, and interdependent vast network of nations with distinct common cultures, not unlike people on other continents, but not identical. These nations featured different levels of social distribution of social power, and natural resources. They often engaged in intertribal warfare. Nevertheless, where the first English colonists settled on the eastern seaboard of the continent, there existed mostly communalistic, virtually classless societies, many of which had prospered for several centuries. The Haudenosaunee are a good case in point. The Haudenosaunee exemplified the formidable tradition of limited government and personal autonomy shared by many cultures north of the Rio Grande. To some extent, this freedom simply reflected North American Indians' relative recent adoption of agriculture. Early farming villages worldwide were much less authoritarian places than later society. But the Indians of the Eastern Seaboard institutionalized their liberty to an unusual extent. The Han and the Shoni would have the second oldest continually existing representative parliament on earth. Only Iceland's Althing, founded in 930 AD, is older. The Haudenosaunee Constitution featured a decentralized governing structure ruled by consensus rather than simply a majority. 
a simultaneously elected bicameral legislature and the empowerment of women. They could recall chiefs. And unlike the U.S. Constitution, which borrowed some of its concepts, the great law of the Haudenosaunee did not sanctify private property. The latter would be a principal factor in the long-standing colonial war to displace and or exterminate them. Quote, the ancestral Puebloans of Chavo Canyon on the Colorado Plateau in the present-day Four Corners region of Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, and Utah thrived from 850 A.D. to 1250 A.D., were ancestors of the Pueblos of New Mexico and constructed more than 400 miles of roads radiating from Chavo. Averaging 30 feet wide, these roads followed straight courses, even through difficult terrains such as hills and rock formations. The highways connected some 75 communities. Pueblo trade extended as far west as the Pacific Ocean, as far east as the Great Plains, and as far south as Central America. One of the most fertile regions on Earth lay between the Atlantic Ocean and the Mississippi River, and south to the Gulf of Mexico. In 12 AD, the Mississippi Valley featured one enormous city, Cahaukia, along with several cities which had pyramids similar to those in Mexico. The population of Cahaukia was tens of thousands of people, exceeding that of London during the same period. In the southeastern region, there were large agriculture-based nations. These included the Cherokee, Choctaw, Seminole, Chickasaw, and Muscogee Creek. European monarchs were driven by the desire to investigate, map, and claim lands occupied by non-Europeans. A papal bull issued in 1455, for instance, permitted the Portuguese monarchy to enslave the population of West Africa. The subsequent voyages of Italian explorer Christopher Columbus to the Americas represented the extension of similar permission given to Spain, which sponsored his trips. Finally, the papal-initiated Treaty of Tordesillas of 1494 divided the earth between Portugal and Spain. All of this constituted the Doctrine of Discovery, which stipulated in no uncertain terms that these nations had the right to colonize, enslave, and exterminate whole populations. Ultimately, other European governments joined the colonizing project, such as the British in North America. Richard Hatcliffe the Younger, an Oxford fellow and clergyman who devoted his life to compiling the travel narratives of explorers, prepared a treatise for Queen Elizabeth I and her top advisors on his working theory of colonization. Hatcliffe's America required what he classified as waste people. He pictured paupers, vagabonds, convicts, debtors, and lusty young men doing the work. 
Merchants would be sent to trade with the Indians, selling trinkets, venting cloth goods, and gathering more information about the interior of the continent. As the waste firm of America was settled, it would become a place where the surplus poor, the waste people of England, could be converted into economic assets. The land and the poor could be harvested together. Corporations chartered by Great Britain established most of the East Coast settlements in North America. They transported many involuntary laborers from the British Isles to work on their colonial properties. Most historians now agree that more than half of all persons who came to the colonies were in bondage to planters, speculators, and proprietors. Thus, the primary reason poor English people were sent to the New World was to serve mercantile interests or to die in the process. Known as quote-unquote first comers, before they were called pilgrims, most of those who took the hazardous trip across the Atlantic Ocean succumbed to starvation and disease. Many indigent people in Britain sold themselves into indentured servitude, whereby their passage was paid in exchange for typically anywhere from four to nine years of virtual slavery in the British colonies. Quotes, labor shortages led some ship captains and agents to round children up from the streets of London and other towns to sail to planters across the ocean, known as spiriting. Some children were shipped off for committing petty crimes. In 1622, a European settler named Jane Dickinson was held in captivity by indigenes for almost a year. When she re was returned to the colony, she was told that she owed 150 pounds of tobacco to her husband's former owner. With no ability to repay, she was forced to work it off. British convicts were among the first wave of people brought from Europe to the colonies. They were used to do heavy labor, work in gold, silver, iron, copper mines, fell trees and burned them for tar, soap, and ash, etc. They were not paid wages. As debt slaves, they were required to repay the English Commonwealth for their crimes by producing commodities for export. Their compensation was that they could avoid longer prison sentences and or execution. The leaders of Jamestown had borrowed directly from the Roman model of slavery. Abandoned children and debtors were made slaves. When indentured adults sold their anticipated labor in return for passage to America, they instantly became debtors, which made their orphan children collateral assets. It was a world not unlike the one Shakespeare depicted in The Merchant of Venice, when Shylock demanded his pound of flesh. Virginia planters felt entitled to their flesh and blood in the forms of the innocent spouses and offspring of dead servants. It is estimated that about 92,000 European immigrants were brought to Virginia and Maryland through the servant trade between 1607 
1682. The great majority of them were English. These laborers could be classified in two major categories, those who were convicted felons and political prisoners, including captives taken in civil war or rebellion in England, Scotland, or Ireland. Brought together in the dungeons of the coastal castles, Gori, Elmina, Cape Coast, or the coral-like barracoons of Bonnie and Calabar, they were a melange of people. They might seem to have little in common, save color. Yet even that sameness, given the shades of black and browns, was remarkable only in that they shared in not being white. One who would search out to one of his own would not attend to color. He would rather listen to language, the special inflections that were his and no others, and look for familiar markings and mannerisms, end quote. The people who were brought to the New World beginning in the 15th century via the transatlantic slave trade primarily came from over 100 tribes in the western part of the African continent. Although the great majority were brought to South America by Portuguese slave traders to Brazil, many would be taken to Central and North America by Dutch, French, and British traders. Slavery, as Karl Marx informed us, was an economic category of prime importance. Moreover, the transatlantic slave trade not only represented the beginning of world trade, it represented the beginning of a world social system in which European traders traded guns, ammunition, and powder to African rulers for men, women, and children who possess within them the capacity to produce and reproduce wealth. Quote, African merchants and chief who, who acted as merchants had about then the fantastic aura of the caliphate of the Arabian Nights. Wealth's power mirrored personal pride and could be reflected both in the ceremonial reverence of others to have wealth, to use it, to destroy it, were all symbols of power, and it was either in luxury and dissipation or in gross avarice that wealth and power were enjoyed most. The Europeans with whom they traded, however, had a different calculus of value. Capitalists all, they made a distinction between a simple thing and one that produces other things that create wealth. There was for them a different kind of wealth, spectral and impalpable and founded on credit and investment. It is important to note that the lifelong hereditary chattel enslavement of Africans, as contrasted with the temporary enslavement of Europeans, did not emerge all at once in the British colonies. There were many contradictions and much confusion over their status during the early days of slavery. Although initially slavery existed in all 13 original colonies, some Africans were initially treated no worse than European indentured servants. 
There's ample evidence that the African captives brought to America in 1619 were not classified as lifelong slaves, but indentures. A considerable number of enslaved Africans had come to North America via the West Indies, spoke English, and were occasionally able to transcend enslavement by religious conversion, a fairly common practice in Spanish colonies. They had always been nominally free blacks in northern colonies and a small number in the south. There were even black slave owners. When religious conversion was not available, some enslaved people were freed by masters who had a change of heart or were willing to sell the enslaved person back to him or herself, a kind of reverse reparations. The latter was usually not feasible considering the rare opportunities on the part of the enslaved to accumulate enough money to buy themselves back from a slave owner. Nevertheless, as historian Nathan Irvin Huggins writes, exploitation of labor was generally accepted by colonial leaders as a fact of life. Quote, it was never to them a question of whether labor should be free or unfree, or whether the poor and unpropertied should be indulged with humanitarian considerations or not. They were men of a society that regarded servants as labor and laborers as base people, for whom hunger and the lash could be the only go to productivity. They were accustomed to a system of labor in which people served Africans in the society as exploitable labor without liberty to serve the will of a master on the pain of cruel suffering or death. This is not to say that the weight of class and servility did not fall more lightly on white laborers than black, but in this respect, the differences were more in degree than in kind. Nothing was to prevent the full weight of oppression from falling on even any given white man or woman as it routinely did on blacks. End quote. Nonetheless, in addition to enclosures of peasant lands in Europe, slavery in the New World laid the economic foundation for the early growth or primitive accumulation of capital, capitalism. Enslaved people produced wealth not only through their labor power and work without wages, but also as commodities bought and sold for profit in the capitalist marketplace. <laughs>